Hello and welcome to a Waypoint Church podcast by Jim Privet. We hope you enjoy listening to it. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it's found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah and had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles. There were also tires of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil things Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God, the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had come back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing all fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. 
Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women of Ashod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. And I rebuked them, and I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and of the first fruits. Remember me, me with favour, my God. Jim's going to bring us the word, but I felt just to pray for him this morning. Lord, I just want to thank you for your presence here this morning with all of us. Lord, we just ask that you just come now, that you rest on our hearts. Lord, you lift our spirits, Lord, and then through this time, we hear your word given to us, Lord, to lift us up, Lord, to excite us, to bring us into your presence, Lord, and to prepare us for our time ahead, Lord. So just again, we ask for your blessing on Jim this morning. Lord, give him your words, anoint his words with your heart, Lord. Lord, and just ask for your blessing over us this morning. Amen. Good morning. Good morning, morning. Thank you, Rob. When Rob agreed to read the, um, the passage today, he was like, is there long words in it? Is there going to be some difficult names? So you did a great job. Thank you, Rob. Thanks as well to Gemma and the worship team. You can clap them if you want to. Um, before I go into the, the sermon, I am, I am, I think, I think Chris mentioned it earlier. Thank you as well, Alders, for leading us in that first part this morning. I think it's really timely and appropriate. Um, I think next week with Keith um, bringing us your message next week, I think it'll be a really um, poignant part for us in our history as a church. So uh, I think lots of people, I was chatting to someone this week who's not been foot, set foot in this church since March 15th last year. So I think it's, for them it's going to be a very personal and emotive and emotional moment. For lots of us, there's lots of different reasons right now as a church we need to come together, be together and be able to seek God together. So um, Keith, I look forward to that. Uh, there's no pressure on that at all, at all for you, but I think it'll be a really timely message. So um, just keep praying for Keith over this next week as well as he brings that message and prepares for it. So my name's Jim. I'm one of the leaders here at the church, and it uh, falls to me to finish the series, Rebuilding, uh, from Nehemiah 13. And uh, really my title today is about complacency that leads to compromise. Complacency that leads to compromise. I'm sure like many of us uh, at the start of this pandemic, 
we thought it'd be a bit of a sprint, didn't we? We thought within a couple of weeks we'd be back <laughs> to whatever normal was. Uh, we'd be back to uh, doing the normal day routines, back to church, all that sort of stuff as well. And then it got to kind of April and then May. And then we thought maybe we'll just have the summer off and we'll be back in September time. And very quickly it became a marathon, didn't it? Uh, something that we probably possibly weren't prepared for. But as I was preparing this week for this, this message, I really felt like this reflects us as followers of Christ, that we're in a marathon. We're in a marathon. And if any of you have done some long distance running, I've never done a marathon, but Claire, our children's worker, sat at the back over here, has done a couple. Have you done a marathon? You've done two. Look at that. Got that right. They are hard work. They're very hard work. I've only done the Great South Run. That was only 10 miles in 2014. But in a marathon, lots of things chip you up, don't they? They discourage you. Your brain plays tricks on you. You've got to really get yourself in training. You've got to be committed to it as well. And like I said, I did the Great South Run in 2014. And uh, I know that many speakers use running as an analogy, but I make no excuses for that. Paul used athletic imagery all the time, so I'm going to go for it. Uh, in the Great South Run, in the, in the, in the build-up to that, uh, I had to get myself off the sofa to begin with, which was um, hard enough. <laughs> Uh, just to get yourself from that uncomplacent sort of that complacent, sorry, um, mood and mindset. And then when I got out to running on the pavements, I was so bad at it <laughs> that I just set myself a target of the next lamppost each time. <laughs> and that was it. I think I did a mile the first time I went for a run. Just set yourself that 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 sort of stage of next mile, next mile, next mile. And uh, and then I got to the race itself in October. We good? We good? We got ourselves the race itself in October. And even that was hard. I think, I mean, again, just tell yourself, get to that next mile. Don't give up. Don't give up. Just keep going. Do you know what, Jim? You've earned your curry tonight. That sort of stuff. You're going to, you know, this is all worth it, that kind of thing. And there were people that were sort of sat on the curb towards the end and they were having sweets and drinks and all that as well. They'd just sort of given up and I was kind of dodging through them. I just said, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. And uh, people were coming out of their houses. I don't know if you've done the Great South Run, anyone, but they come out the houses, the last kind of road that bends around back on, on the coast there. And they'd bought, they'd bought these sweets out. And I don't know what was in the sweets, but everyone was stopping to eat them and uh, having cakes as well. And I was so tempted just to give up. I thought, no, I'll just do that. I'll just do that. It's easy, right? Just get a bit complacent about it. But I just pressed on, pressed on and finished it eventually. I think I collapsed after I hit the lines, to be honest. But um, our motto text this year, and this will all make sense in a minute. And I, I'm really happy that Keith brought it up last week. We didn't plan this, so it's a bit of a God thing, I think. Um, was Philippians, or is Philippians 3.14, which is to press on towards the goal to win the prize. If you remember that, it's on our website as well. And uh, our focus is that we are going to be a community that pursues Jesus this year, that knows him better and brings about his kingdom plans. We're on his kingdom mission. And I think that really reflects well where we're at in this last chapter. If you love the sort of films that end with a lovely twist and a a happy ending. This is not the chapter. Should have finished last week with Keith on that one. This is not that chapter. It's very honest. It's very difficult. I think it's a great reminder that we are in this race, but we can grow really complacent. We can grow really complacent as we follow, as we press on to Jesus. It's a warning that as we regather, as we rebuild a church, that we need, to, we need each other in complacency. It's so easy you know, we are a community of, of believers, that we have our own issues going on. We have our own failings going on. We have our own discouragements. This week is a huge upset for many people. 
And there could be so many points where we want to get off the race. We want to just sit down on the curb and eat sweets and just give up. But I just want to encourage you not to do that and to press on, to press on. No one is perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. People we know are not perfect. But we need each other at this time more than ever, ever to press on. You know, that's why we've been talking over the series that this place needs to be a place of security. A place where we can begin to be honest with each other and authentic with each other and disciple each other, discipled by each other as well. We can have those hard conversations. I don't know if you remember this, but Keith introduced this. You wouldn't go to a hospital, would you, and say to somebody, you're right. How's things? You'd ask them, what's up, wouldn't you? You know, following Jesus, when you're pressing on, is difficult. It's difficult. It's okay to say, what's up? How can I pray for you? How can I get alongside you? Because otherwise we become complacent. And that's what was happening in this last chapter. A complacent community that had taken their eyes off of God for whatever reason. And they were not honouring God as a result. You know, Nehemiah 12, as I said a moment ago, was a great finish. But it was not the reality of it. Over those 12 years that Nehemiah had spent in Jerusalem already, he'd built the wall. You remember this? Yeah, on the old foundations, Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, he invites Ezra in. Doesn't need to give that scriptural foundation to the community as well. Get back to the law to follow that. In Nehemiah 9, you see this amazing moment of repentance as a community recognised that they are in great need of who God is, that they'd forgotten and they'd moved away from him. And then in Nehemiah 10, they have these moments, these agreements, this covenant again, if you like, between God and his people, where they agree to obey God's command. They agree to not intermarry. They agree to observe the Sabbath, to not neglect the house of the Lord. So you get this sense that Nehemiah is kind of like, right, we set this up. In Nehemiah 5, by the way, he's going to go back to the king. He says that. I'm going to leave you alone. A bit like the house rules when you leave your kids alone, <laughs> if you have kids, for the house party that you know is going to come, right? Don't drink from your dad's whiskey cabinet. <laughs> no loud music after 11. Don't, no, no weirdos we've never met before. Right, I'm going to leave you to it. We're all good. We're back there. Let's go, right? And then uh, some scholars say that he was away for about 15 years. I don't know if that's the exact number, but some scholars do. 15 years later, let's say he comes back in Nehemiah 7. Nearby, sorry, 13 verse 7. And you get this moment in those films that you see where the parent comes home from like a house party, opens the door and like the house is just trashed, right? And there's randomers there that were never meant to be there. And there's like, you drink all the dad's whiskey and that kind of stuff. It's like, what's going on? Like, we, I thought you guys had this. You with me? I thought you guys had it. Are you with me? Yeah. Right, good. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah, there was this sense of complacency that had just taken over the place. And Nehemiah is faced with this devastation of complacency. God, we set you up for this. We knew, you know, you were on the kingdom mission. You knew what you're meant to be doing. But now look, it's a mess. It's a mess for whatever reason, for whatever genuine reason it is, it's a mess. You know, it's the same for us, isn't it? Often we can, you know, we love Jesus. We're singing, we're singing about it. Hopefully we can, oh, I can't wait till next week. Can you? <laughs> it's going to be amazing next week. I think there'll be a lot of emotion for lots of different reasons next week. You know, we love Jesus, we sing, you know, we live to make your name high. An hour later, a day later, two days, two weeks, two years, whatever it is, we grow complacent. Sometimes we become spiritually indifferent to Jesus, to the mission that we're on. And so there's just a few things, I will say, there's three things, because it's a classic thing. There's three things that I want to pull out from this passage, I think, that can really impact us as we press on towards Jesus. And I think there are things that actually can derail us from it, if I'm honest. The three things that I've seen 
from verses four onwards. The first thing is that of scripture. Hopefully we've got that on the PowerPoint. It will come up in a minute. Is that of scripture. You see two people. You see the priest, Eliashib, and you see the people. So Eliashib in verse four and the priest in verse 10 as well. Two groups of people, two kinds of people that completely neglected the significance of applying scripture. So you have this, this, this priest who's in charge of the storerooms, the house of God, and he's closely associated with um, Tobiah. Does that ring a bell, the name Tobiah? So Tobiah was someone who was really opposed to the, the rebuilding of the wall, wasn't he, in the early chapters of this project. And actually he's an Ammonite as well. And uh, so there's a lot of beef between the Ammonites and the Israelites. It's going to do a little bit of a history journey. Is that all right? Because I like a bit of history. So, so you can trace this all the way back to Genesis 19. You know, you've heard of Lot. If you've not, don't worry. There's a guy called Lot who has an incestuous relationship with his daughters. It's a whole other story for another day. Uh, and from that, they have two children, Ammon and Moab. You might know that from reading the Bible. You get the Moabites and you get the Ammonites, okay? So there's this real beef between the Israelites because over the years, you see the Moabites and the Ammonites cropping up amongst God's people at different times. Numbers 21, they're opposing God's progress for his people. Deuteronomy 23, they refused to give food and drink to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. And then you see in this passage that they hire a soothsayer basically to curse God and his people. So there is a significant amount of tension between the Ammonites, this Tobiah, that's now living in the house of God. And so you get this like light bulb moment, right? <laughs> You've seen that film. Light bulb where they're reading from the book of Moses, Deuteronomy, and they're like, ah, oh, we've had an Ammonite living in the house of God. That's not great, is it? And so they have to do something about it. They have to do something about it. Now, what I will say, because I think it's important, this is not, this is not God against a particular race at all, Okay. So don't read into that. You see later on in Matthew 1.5, you see the name of Ruth. Have you seen Ruth in Matthew 1.5? So she's a Moabite and she's grafted into the line, the lineage of Jesus. Jesus comes from that line. So it's not about that. What God's trying to do is there's some religious practices right now that are not great and they should not be among you. Verse 10, more complacency towards scripture. So the people, the reason Tobiah was able to live in the house of God because the people were not bringing grain and store stuff to the storerooms, okay? So they knew that that wasn't great. Deuteronomy 12, be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. So the Levites and the worship leaders, those that were living in the temple, needed the people to bring grain and food and tithing into the temple itself. But they weren't doing that. So they had to leave the storeroom, they had to leave the temple and to go back to work. And so there's space, which is why Tobiah gets in. So basically you've got the priests and you've got the people that are not applying scripture. Are you with me? This is important. They decided to ignore it and it had no effect on their life at all. So this is where complacency creeps in. Premier Christian uh, News recently released an article that said that the stat, it was last year actually, sorry, that 51% of believers read scripture less than once a month. Now that's not meant to, I'm not meant to dig anyone out, okay? I'm not saying that for a judgment reason at all. But perhaps that's where some of us are at with scripture in this room. That we don't actually read it. We're not spending time in it. We've grown complacent towards it for whatever reason, because it's difficult, it challenges us. It's, perhaps it doesn't quite fit with how we want it to fit. But I think that's the power of Hebrews 4, isn't it? With a word, a double-edged sword that cuts straight through to the spirit and the soul. 
to the bone and the marrow, it gets to the point, it puts us in an awkward position, it challenges us, but we cannot be doers of the word if we're not hearers of the word, can we? If we're not spending time in scripture, we're not going to ever be doers of the word, we'll just do whatever we think is right. This is what had happened here. They were not doers of the word, they understood scripture, they understood the law, but they weren't doing it. A couple of weeks ago I spoke about this, we spoke about this phrase, didn't we, that information doesn't lead to transformation, do you remember that? Information alone doesn't lead to transformation. So perhaps there's some of us even in this room, and I'm, I've been this many, many times, where I know scripture, I know it pretty well, but it's just information. It doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't lead anywhere. It's only obedience to that information, to scripture, that leads to transformation. You see that in Nehemiah 8, when Ezra gets brought back in and they get back to scripture, they get back to living out the law and the whole community is transformed. Hopefully you remember that chapter as well. The whole community is transformed because they get back to scripture, they live it out, they apply it, they're obedient to it. Perhaps for some of us right now, our complacency is due to that lack of impact that scripture should be having on our lives for whatever reason. And we need to get back to it. It's that that keeps us on course. It's that that keeps us pressing on as we follow Jesus. The second thing from verse 15 onwards is that of the Sabbath. There was a couple of issues around the Sabbath for them that Nehemiah had raised as he came back. And around the people and the nobles, they were basically completely neglecting the significance of the Sabbath. There was trading, there was selling, there was buying going on. And so that significance, the importance of the Sabbath was completely lost. Now, I did a bit of reading around this, so I didn't make sure I don't give too much because it would be just too confusing. But the Sabbath was so important for the Jewish people for lots of different reasons. Loads of different reasons. It was significant. It symbolised so much stuff. Colossians 2, it talks about that the, the Sabbath for the Jewish race was a, a shadow of the things to come. It goes on to talk about that as being Christ, right? They were looking for a Messiah. The Sabbath was that they were looking for this, uh, this rest they were earning their salvation from doing all these sin offerings and everything else as well. And actually they were looking for a time of rest, this Messiah, this King that would come in and rescue them. So the Sabbath was a reminder of that possibility. It's exciting, I think, when you read into it and you get that sense. This is what, they were, this is what Sabbath meant for them. It was an echo of that. Now we're this, we're this side of Christ, aren't we? We're this side of Christ. So for me, and hopefully for you, I found this exciting. It's a shadow of what will come, the eternal rest. We're going to be in the permanent presence of our King. I'm excited by that. So this, thank you. So the Sabbath is this signal of saying, do you know what, one day these things that we do, both personally when we're just having rest, but also corporately, we'll come to that in a minute as we're together, it's like an echo of what's to come. And I can't wait again for next week where we can sing. We're going to be shoulder to shoulder, probably, hopefully, physically, and we're going to be, it's like that echo of that Sabbath rest. We're going to be with our King. It's exciting, isn't it? Yes, it is. So exciting. But the Sabbath, I remember being dragged up in church. <laughs> Going to church mainly because you've got sweets, I won't lie. Um, you know, come to church and we'll give all the kids in the, in the Sunday school sweets. And I loved that, that bit. But basically Sabbath equated to church on Sunday. I've got to go to church because that's the Sabbath, right? But the life, life has changed a lot, hasn't it? Life has changed a lot. And we're probably, we're probably, this church, with the, the, the generations that we've got, we probably crossed lots of different thoughts around Sundays and the Sabbath as well. Which I think is the beauty of the church family, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> we probably crossed, you know, you need to be at church on Sunday, you've got to do it. I love that. And I think, well, it's just another day. Busy, life happens. I remember a time when shops weren't even open on Sundays. Do you remember that? 
Yeah, Abby, she works on a Sunday. You don't mind me saying this. Sometimes I take Obi to football on a Sunday morning as well. Sunday afternoons, it gets busy, doesn't it? Life gets busy. So it's like, what's the Sabbath? What does it mean? That's why it's so important for us to get a really strong understanding of the significance of Sabbath. I think we've lost, I think we've become complacent towards the principle and the practice of the Sabbath. That actually it's doing something not just for the physical rest, that we need to step out of our normal routine, but also that spiritual restoration as well. John Mark Comer, some of you read his book last year, uh, the, the, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's a great book, by the way. He writes this about the Sabbath. In the Genesis story, God worked for six days and then he rested on the Sabbath. In doing so, he built a rhythm into the fabric of creation. But over the years, we've lost this dynamic interplay between work and rest. In Matthew 2, what does Jesus say about a Sabbath? It's made for man, isn't it? Not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was always intended as a blessing, as a gift, to give you rest for different reasons. But the Pharisees got hold of it and they stuck lots of rules and regulations around it and it become a stumbling block for people. It's a gift. It's a gift of rest to step out of your normal life, your normal routine. It's a reminder of the eternal perspective that we should have, that we're going to have this rest with our King Jesus. Do you have times? I don't want to have a go at anyone who's thinking, oh, Jim's just saying go back to church, needs to come back to church, right? <laughs> but do you have times throughout your week where you can have Sabbath moments? And I don't mean just get a book out, that's lovely, or go for a walk, that's brilliant. Sometimes that triggers that kind of moment of being with your king. I don't mean those times, I mean those moments of Sabbath rest. I hope you don't mind me saying this, but Keith, Fridays has been your thing, hasn't it, over the last few years? Just that Sabbath rest. You can tell me off later for saying that publicly. But Fridays has been your thing where you're just kind of reconnecting. Do you have those moments where you're just reconnecting? You're not distracted, you're not watching a film, that's all lovely, don't get me wrong. But those Sabbath moments are reminding us of who God is, just to be still and know that he is God. And that's something else I think is really important. So often we're human doings, aren't we? We just we need to be productive. We've got to get this done. We've got to, get, we've got to be this. We've got to get this done. I've got such a busy life. But actually, God's created us to be human beings, right? In his presence, where he reestablishes. It's not by what you do, your productivity. It's just to who you are. I love you for who you are. Come and rest. Know me again as your king, as your savior. Last thing on Sabbath was that when the, the two kind of commandments, the Ten Commandments of the two um, narratives of the Ten Commandments given to the Israelites, both times they were given, they were given to the people, right? And I think we've lost that a little bit as well, this collective approach towards the Sabbath. The first thing often happens, isn't it, when we get tired or we've got busy things going on, we squeeze Sabbath rest out. We squeeze it out to go to bed early, it might be, we don't come to church on the Sunday, we've got other things going on, whatever it could be. But actually, I think there's a real a lovely kind of this echo from back then where they did Sabbath together so well. And I think that's the call for us as we regather back to church, as we're rebuilding what church can look like. Let's just see it as a chance to be together as people. Not because we should, because it's good. It's good to rest, to get out of the traffic, if you like. But also it's good for our souls to be restored. And right now, as a church, we need restoration. We need healing together, don't we, as a church. We need to seek the Lord and what he's doing with us here. What does it mean for you to, to step back into that rhythm, that dynamic interplay of Sabbath in your life? The last thing, this is from verses 23 onwards. 
And Nehemiah calls out the intermarrying that's been happening in the community. And really what he's doing here is highlighting the influence of relationship. So I kind of want to make it bigger than just marriage. Um, but what had happened was the Jewish people, the Jewish men, had been marrying women from other races. This is not, by the way, a, uh, a racial thing in that sense. But a lot of the issues was that those, they brought their own religious practices into it their own beliefs as well. They didn't speak Hebrew, the language of Judah. And so what happened is traditionally they had children and the women raised the children back then. They educated them as well and they could not educate them in Hebrew. So they did not know scripture, they did not know the law. So you had a whole generation of young people growing up without the understanding of who Yahweh was. Influence is a powerful thing. As sincere as it is for many of us, it's a very powerful thing. Complacency around influence in our lives can lead us to being not pressing on. All our relationships are places of influence, good and bad. And it's important for us to recognise that. I said to you earlier about the Great South Run. At the start of my run, probably about for the first mile and a half, I was stuck in this massive group of people. After a while, I realised that possibly running at a pace that was a bit slow for me. I didn't know how to get through it. So this guy, I remember just hacking it by me. And I just thought I'd follow him in his wake. <laughs> so I was like, he'll do. I'll follow him. And he ran off for about two miles. And I was behind him and I got alongside him. And once I got my breath back, I was like, what are you doing? What are you running at? He was like, seven minute miles. I was like, I'm not. Bye. <laughs> and he, he ran off into the sunset. And I slowed down my pace because I wasn't really good at pacing myself at that point. And then this guy ran alongside me. He was like, you're right. I was like, yeah. He was like, what are you running at? I was like, eight minute miles. He was like, yeah, so am I. <laughs> I was like, yes, great. I didn't know there was markers with big signs that run eight minute miles, by the way, because I didn't read that part of the information. But please hear this to the right heart, okay? There are people in our lives that are running different races to us. They are. And the slow and fast thing is not an analogy of that, but they're running different races to us. What race are you running? A study has recently shown that you are the average of your five closest friends. That might scare some of you. You're the average of your five, five closest friends. Apparently, if, if your best friend loses 10 pounds in weight, you're 75% more likely to lose 10 pounds in weight. Influence is such a strong thing. As sincere as our influences are in our lives, be mindful of it. Because it will pull us off sometimes. It will, it will mean that we won't press on sometimes. We need to be aware of the influence of life. We need to be aware that we are an influence as well. We are called to be salt and light, aren't we? We are called to run, al run alongside people. You know, we're not called to a holy huddle. That's not what I'm saying. Please get it. You know, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. You know, as the people that are running in us in our eight minute miles, some of those guys will know Jesus. Some of them will not. But are they having more influence on us than we are having on them? Complacency comes when we do not recognize that. Jesus says, doesn't he? He didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He spoke a lot in hyperbole, <laughs> really hammering it up. <laughs> a man against his father, a daughter against his mother. It's a heavy statement, but he was talking about this idea of disowning Jesus. You know, that being allegiant to King Jesus can even come sometimes uh, recognising that those that are the closest to you, that bond of love can sometimes be the hardest place. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you leave. That's not what I'm seeing. Not, don't just break up. That's not what I mean. Just be aware of it. Pray about it. Pray into it. What is your calling into that particular relationship as a follower of Jesus? 
That can sometimes be the cost, I suppose. Do you have people you can journey with? Do you have people that are on your journey as you press on? Last thing. Abby and I said yes to each other uh, 13 years ago, I think it was, if I got that right. Is that 13 years ago? Fantastic. It's one thing saying yes to each other on your, mari- on your wedding day. It's another thing saying yes each day. For those of us who are married, I'm, you know, this is not, if you're not married, then please try and understand what I'm trying to say here. But isn't it? It can be difficult to say yes each day. Yes, I choose you again each day, each morning. But when you become complacent in your marriage, your marriage begins to suffer. It's the same with any relationship. If you don't spend any time in it, it begins to suffer. You know, there's been many times where Abby said, right, let's just spend a meal. Let's spend some time together. Let's go out for a meal. Well, why are you doing that? Why have you made that decision? You're not, we've not chatted about that. You know, it's very easy, isn't it, to go off on your own course and when you allow complacency to grow in. What did Nehemiah do when he saw this? He confronted it, didn't he? Strongly. I mean, he beat some people up. I wouldn't recommend doing that, pulling out their hair. You can't do that to me anyway, so just in case anyone was thinking of doing that. But he brought about aggressive reform. He saw complacency and he wasn't afraid to call it out, was he? To combat this, to get back on course, to press on. He returned this community back to the application of scripture, the understanding of it, the importance of it. He uncluttered the Sabbath. He brought people in in verse 30 that were good influences in the temple, people that, would, that were trusted, people that could help the whole community to worship God. And you'll notice in verse 14, 22, 31, each time he said, remember this good deed, didn't he? Remember this good deed. He did it. He battled against complacency because it was all about honouring God rather other people. And that's what we need right now. We need each other to be able to do that so we do not grow in complacency towards God so that we can press on Philippians 3, 14 together. So it's the Spirit's job. I've said a few things. These are the things that I prepared this week, but it's the Spirit's job to do what he does. Only God can do that, not me. Uh, If you're offended by anything I'm saying, I'm sorry, but maybe that's God and you. Um, But I really pray for our community, especially right now, that we will become a community that is on track, that is pressing on, that we lift our eyes off of any of the circumstances we're in right now and we can press on. I'm not denying the circumstances that we're in right now. Um, I want to invite the band back up just to, um, for our last song. And we're going to sing or stand and listen to Cornerstone. And it, for me, I thought this was applicable this week because it doesn't deny our circumstances, but it does remind us of where our hope is in this that let's not just be people or a community as we regather, as we come back to church, that just sing it and say it, but we know it and we live it, that we're pressing on, that we're discipling each other, we're discipled by each other, that we can become a place of security as a church where we can love each other, we can receive things and we can say things in love as well. That's so important. That is so important. But this last song, I'm sure most of us will know Cornerstone, is about where's the anchor? Where is it for us? Is it in each other? Is it in an individual or is it in Christ? As they sing, as the band leads us, just ask the Spirit, where is that complacency in my life? Where do I need to lift my eyes back to you again? Where do I really need to get this sorted? Where do I need to, like Nehemiah did, do I call this out? As hard as it might be, and get back on track. 
Actually, if you could just start playing, I'm just going to pray. Is that all right? Thanks, Gemma. Jesus, it's easy to take our eyes off the prize, off of you. Well, the reason that we're doing this, all things can trip us up, can discourage us. There's things that we are personally battling with that are meaning that we're not on course with you right now. But Jesus, in this space, we just invite you in. It's only in your presence, Lord, that transformation comes. Holy Spirit, come. You are a hope. You're the reason we do what we do because you did what you did on the cross. Jesus, you died and rose again. You set us free. You called us into this incredible mission. We're sorry for the times. It might be right now that we become complacent for whatever reason. But Lord, just come again once more as you always do in your grace and that nature that you are, that you never stop loving us call us into something, to life in all its fullness, even though that's so difficult sometimes, even though we get so discouraged sometimes, Jesus, you call us into more and more of who you are, what it is you're doing. Lord, as a community here this morning, that's our heart, that's our desire, what it is you're doing here, but more importantly, Lord, what it is you're doing in our lives and outside of this place. Lord, this place can become a place of security, authentic relationship, authentic community, Lord, where we are just encouraging each other on in your mission, where we can come together on the Sabbath and we can just be reminded of who you are, of the hope that we have in you, of that day in the future where we'll be restored. There'll be no more tears, no more suffering, where you wipe away all those things. Holy Spirit, come. Just reset our feet on you. Lord, building us, rebuilding us, what you want to do. Your powerful name.